The reading is from Hosea, chapter 8, and can be found on page 905 of the Bibles in front of you. Hosea, chapter 8, verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my commandment and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, O our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They're from Israel. This calf, a craftsman has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something alien. They offer sacrifices given to me, and they eat the meat, but the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire upon their cities that will consume their fortresses. Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's hand. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed feasts, on the festival days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, thanks very much, Ruth, for reading, and um, thank you for being here. We're now over the first half of us here. We're going to go into the second half, and um, it would be great help if you could keep uh, the passage open on 900, page 905. Uh, and on our handouts, uh, we're, there's an outline of where we're hoping to go in the next few moments. Well, let's pray as we begin. Father, we praise you that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light in the darkness. And so, Father, we pray as we meditate and think on your word now, that, Father, you would show us the right path. Please help us, Father, to turn from those things that pull us away from the Lord Jesus and turn to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as much as I hate to admit it, I took three attempts to pass my driving test. Um, You don't have to get in a car with me if you don't want to. Uh, And as much as people said to me, well, the best drivers don't pass first time, I know they're just being kind. It is a bit embarrassing. Now, the first attempt I had at driving, it was a clear failure. I mean, I nearly hit a car, and the examiner had to hit the brakes halfway through. So I knew uh, I wasn't going to recover from that. Uh, But the second time was very different. Because the second time, I thought I did pretty well. I thought I was driving the perfect drive. I did everything right. I pulled back to the center, expected the examiner to give me uh, a congratulations and here's your test uh, pass certificate. Uh, But as I unclipped my belt, uh, the examiner said, I've not met the required standard. And apparently I clipped a curb or hit a pedestrian or something like that. (laughs) Didn't notice. Not true. But I remember thinking to myself, surely that's a bit harsh. That drive was pretty good. I mean, surely you could overlook the odd mistake, clipping the curb or that sort of thing. Uh, And maybe you feel something of that as we look through this book of Hosea. Uh, Maybe as we've looked through it the last few weeks, you thought to yourself, what's the big problem? I mean, maybe you've even got some sympathy with Israel. You think to yourself, surely they've not got everything right, but hasn't God got high standards I mean, sure, they've got mixed hearts, but isn't that to be expected? Isn't this a bit harsh by God, responding this way? And of course, it's not just Hosea we might feel that about. We might feel that about God's judgment in general. We think to ourselves, we're not completely bad. Why is he so concerned that we're devoted to him? Uh, Maybe you read verses like this in Exodus 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that verse doesn't sit easy with you, because you think to yourself, why is God jealous? Why does he want my devotion? Why does he take things so seriously? Uh, Well, that's the question behind our passage this evening. See, the the background issue running through um, these verses in particular is the coming exile. See, God has promised to remove the people from the land. He's had enough, and he's evicting them. And the bailiffs he's going to use is the empire of Assyria. We've seen this map a few weeks. I don't know, uh, it's still not the the right colour, but uh, Assyria's here marching down into Israel and the surrounding area. And Hosea's saying, look, in a few years' time, Assyria is going to completely steamroll into the land, kidnap the king, kill the people, and destroy the culture. And it just seems perhaps a little harsh. Why the need for an exile? Why that extreme? And these chapters we see tonight really are an answer to that question. They are a defense of God's character. Why it is he demands our soul devotion 
and why that's a good thing. And I hope for us tonight we see, we will see why God takes this so seriously and actually why this is a good thing for us that he demands our devotion. Uh, the first thing to see here is really that the people had completely underestimated the terms of their relationship with God. Now, I, I wonder how you imagine the Christian life or how you talk about it. I, I've done this. I've often talked about the Christian life as a personal relationship with God. We become Christians and we enter into a relationship with God as our Father. Now, that's true, but it's lacking. Because to know God, to come into a relationship with God, isn't just a relationship, it's a covenantal relationship. Now, what does that mean? Well, a covenant is a formal agreement. Uh, It's an agreement that sets out the terms of a relationship. So, it says things like, if you obey, this will happen. If you disobey, this will happen. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound like the terms of a relationship. It sounds a little bit cold. I mean, what sort of relationship would you have an agreement for? But actually, a covenantal relationship is an incredibly relational one. Now, of course, you probably think of it already. The best example of this is marriage. A marriage is a covenant. You come to the front of the church here and you make promises like in sickness and in health. It's not just a kind of casual going out, is it? It's a formal uh, relationship. But it doesn't make it cold. In fact, marriage in its ideal is the most intimate relationship two human beings can enjoy. Do you see the point? It's relational, but it's covenantal. And in fact, I'd argue that it's the covenant that makes it relational. Now, God's relationship with his people was covenantal. Uh, Just look at verse 1. He says, put a trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord, we come to that, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. See, Hosea says, look, you didn't just have a personal relationship with God, you had a covenantal relationship, and it's been broken. The terms of the agreement have been ignored. Now, why does this all matter? Well, because a covenantal relationship is always meant to be an exclusive relationship. Um, When God sets out the covenant in Exodus, uh, he says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the point? It's exclusive, no other gods. And when we get to Hosea's day, it's quite interesting because uh, it's not that the people have kind of completely dismissed God. It's not that they've kind of run off and made a completely new covenant with something else. It's just that they've not treated that covenant as exclusive. And so notice in verse 2, Hosea says that, uh, God says, Israel cries out to me. So he's there, but he also says in verse 4, they set up kings without my consent, they choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. So you see the point. The people, what are they doing? Well, they're hedging their bets. They're covering both bases. Uh, We've said this in previous weeks, that an idol was the way to get security. It was to make yourself kind of make the future secure. And the people think to do that, well, they need more than one God. They think they can serve Yahweh, uh, the covenant God, on a Sunday, uh, but Monday to Friday, they need other gods. And then we see God's verdict, 8 verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. And we love trumpets, don't we? We've got a trombone here tonight. Um, 
we love the jazz night where I guess there was a trumpet, but this is a different type of trumpet. This is a war's siren. And eagles, we love seeing at bird shows and things like that, but this eagle is terrifying because this is the eagle of Assyria that's about to pounce on the nation. See, Hosea is saying to us that to be in a covenant relationship with God is a big deal. It's not an informal friendship. It's not like a relationship that we have with our internet service provider. It's like being married. And to be married is to be in an exclusive relationship. And maybe you think to yourself, well, that still sounds a little bit harsh. It still sounds that God's being kind of restrictive and only wanting devotion to him. Sounds a bit egocentric. But, but note how Hosea puts this kind of rebellion in verse 3. He says, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. See, do you see, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because he's not saying, look, you've, uh, you've um, by, by being devoted to God, you're really doing a terrible thing. He's saying you're going away from what is good. See, God is the source of good in our creation. And to be devoted to him is to be devoted to good. It's not some egocentric game, not some desire to gain power. God wants our devotion because it is the root to goodness. Uh, Now and again, um, we like to surprise our children uh, by taking them to the beach or something. And um, often when we do that, it's you kind of build it up in your minds. You'll think it's going to be the best day ever. The faces are going to light up and it's going to be incredible, but it's never like that. Um, you say, get in the car, and they don't want to get in the car, and you just say, get in the car, and shut the door. And you tell them to get dressed, but they're walking around with no clothes on, and you tell them to get dressed. And uh, by the end of it, you just think, oh, why did I bother? But um, they just don't, children, um, not just, yeah, their children generally just don't get it when something's coming in the future. And, and you don't want to get them in the car just because you want to lock them in the car. You don't want them to get dressed just because it's some unnecessary hoop for them to jump through, but it's because you want to get them to the beach. And it's similar here. God wants these people's devotion not to be awkward, not to be egocentric, but because he wants them to enjoy what is good. See, I think Satan's biggest temptation is not for us to give up on Jesus entirely, See, I think Satan's biggest temptation is to tell us that we can serve two masters, that you don't need that exclusive devotion. See, I'm pretty sure on this, Satan doesn't come to us and say, look, you've got to give up on Jesus, you've got to stop becoming a Christian. I think he says, well, you can do that, of course, and have your other gods. Of course you can live for career, of course you can can chase sex, cling to your money, that's okay. Of course, God's a forgiving God, you can be devoted to that and you can be devoted to him. But do you see the point? That the, the, time, the moment you become a Christian, God covenants himself to you. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, uh, something similar. He says, so also, that's not what I expected to see there. But, um, <laughs> so also, we, yes, no, that's right. We were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, as I think is another way of speaking uh, about idols. And he says this, but now that you know God, or rather uh, known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you see the point? You've been brought into this new covenant. Don't turn back. Don't commit yourself uh, to what they demand. There's one covenant and one Lord. Now moving on to our second point, maybe you're still asking that question, 
that still feels a bit harsh. I mean, why does it matter that this relationship is exclusive? Why have this uh, desire for uh, an exclusive devotion? Because in Hosea's day, it felt like it made a lot of sense to be devoted to a lot of gods, to hedge your bets. I mean, you had different gods for different aspects of life. Uh, A bit like the way you have different utility providers for different services. You just went to the god that provided you water and the god that provided you internet and the god that provided you gas, that type of thing. See, it's not, again, we've seen this, it's not that they were against Yahweh, but he just wasn't very, it didn't feel very practical. They felt they needed something for the here and now. And just in passing, it's worth seeing this. I came across this last week in my studies. Uh, it's a pot. Now, um, I know that's not immediately exciting, but I think this is incredible. It was dug up uh, about three decades ago, and it just shows, um, uh, it's, it's incredible, but it's also yeah, highly blasphemous. It shows a calf and uh, some kind of bovine kind of shaped things. Uh, and there's an inscription on the bottom of it that says um, something like, uh, blessings from God, uh, Yahweh, and his Asherah. That's an incredibly blasphemous thing uh, to have. Uh, and Asherah was another goddess. And, uh, and so you see what's going on with the people there, kind of hedging their bets, uh, having both gods running alongside. And, immediate, and when you consider the context they're in, you can kind of understand why their hearts would be driven to that. They've got Hosea breathing, uh, they've got Isaiah breathing down their necks. Of course, they think, let's try everything. Let's try all the gods. Now, I can't believe I've gone this long in a sermon without mentioning coronavirus, but here's your first illustration. Um, but it's, it's similar, isn't it? With the coronavirus, we've tried lots of things. We are trying lots of things. We've tried containment. Uh, we're trying a vaccine, we're trying hand washing, we're trying foot tap greetings or whatever we do. And that's what the people are doing. They're just trying these other gods. It's the instinctive thing to do. So what's the problem with it? Well, it's twofold. First of all, it just doesn't work. See, Israel went into fix-it mode uh, when Assyria got on the rise. They got very practical and they even paid them 10,000 shekels of silver. But look at what Hosea says about this investment in verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim, that's another word for Israel, has sold herself to lovers. See, it hasn't worked. She's like a donkey. That's not a complimentary comparison. See, a donkey, apparently, I'm told this, is a pretty sociable animal. It's meant to be with other animals, but this donkey's alone. And uh, this donkey's not only alone, but it's wandering aimlessly for food. And it's a pretty disparaging picture of the nation, just going after uh, uh, Assyria, paying it money. Despite all the energy they're plowing in, it hasn't actually delivered. And of course, we've seen this all through Hosea. The great irony of the idols is they uh, show so much promise, but they deliver so little. And we know that in our own lives as well. I remember when I was back um, in finance, uh, back in um, uh, in the city, um, I remember as I was coming into my job, lots of people were going out. I think that was a coincidence, but um, they were basically retiring as I as I started and. Um, when you retire, you get a nice speech, you often get a gift, um, you have to buy cakes for everyone, 
And um, then everyone kind of moves on. I remember just people retiring on the Friday, and then by the Monday, it was like they weren't there. Well, they weren't there. Well, like they were never there, rather. (laughs) Now, it wasn't that people were being horrible. They weren't being mean. They loved the people. But there was a sense in which the whole thing had to move on. And I remember coming into this, seeing this for the first time, thinking, is that it? All those extra hours at the office, all the devotion shown to their career, all the strain on the family, all the ambition, and it's all forgotten in a weekend. Now, of course, work is not a bad thing, and it's not a wrong thing to show devotion to our jobs. But as someone tempted to idolize career early on, this was a real wake-up call because it showed me straight away that it's not going to deliver what it promises. And I don't know about you, but it's so easy, isn't it, to convince yourself that those kind of functional gods will one day deliver. And you find yourself like a Syria, like a donkey, sort of plowing all your money into to these things and all your devotion, hoping that it will come good. But actually, Hosea says it is worthless. They're like a wild donkey wandering alone. But secondly, it's not just they don't work, but they demand ever-increasing devotion. Now, what's interesting here is they really didn't have the right response uh, when Assyria was on the rise, because actually they became ever more devoted to their God. See, look at verse 11. They actually became more religious. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinners, uh, for sinning. Uh, The word there, actually, uh, for many, is the word multiplied, and it's this kind of picture of Israel desperately producing altar after altar after altar to sacrifice to some god uh, in this kind of vain attempt uh, to get the safety they desired. But look at verse 14. This is what they should have done. Israel has forgotten its maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns. Uh, again, that, that word multiplies there for many. It's this Judah, he says, is, is building multiple cities. See, rather than rest and draw comfort in their covenant Lord, who has committed himself to them, they engage in this frantic activities. Now, why do they do that? Well, it's because what idols demand. See, idols offer you that illusion of security but they never deliver it. They always demand ever-increasing devotion. And so if you make an idol of money, you never feel rich, and you find yourself getting more and more caught up in that desire for it. You always fear the next market downturn, the next rate cut. You're always looking for the next pension uh, provider. If you make an idol of beauty, you never feel very attractive. And so you always fear the mirror, uh, what the next morning will do to you, and you find yourself ever-increasingly devoted to uh, offsetting the effects of the years. If you make an idol of your intellect, you always feel foolish, and you always fear losing the arguments of, uh, or losing the argument, or people seeing your true capacity, and you find yourself devoted to becoming ever-increasingly intelligent with that hope of that never happening. See, idols, they offer the security, but they don't provide it, because only God can, and only a covenant relationship with him can provide what we need. See, God's covenant relationship with us is not on the basis of those virtues. God covenants himself to us, whether we're rich or poor, beautiful or ugly, wise or foolish. 
And the moment you treat God like an idol is the moment you lose that. See, as soon as you open up your relationship with God, as soon as you hedge your bets with other gods, you find yourself devoted to that thing over a relationship with the Lord. See, we want God, we see again, don't we, that God wants exclusive devotion. Again, not to be harsh, not from some weird desire, but because he is so different to the idols, because he knows that good only comes from him and not through those things. See, the great irony here is Israel didn't see that. They were wandering around like a donkey when they had the Lord there as their rest and their protection. But moving on to our third point, what do we do with all this? Do we just kind of look back at Israel and think, well, they got it wrong, but we've got it right? Well, actually, um, we see that actually the Lord's going to do something uh, else through them. Uh, First of all, though, it's going to get a lot worse for Israel. Just look at 9 verse 3. God says uh, this, They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. Now, he says um, a few times that they'll return to Egypt, uh, and we get a bit confused. Is it Egypt? Is it Assyria? Uh, Egypt, I think, is picture language for Assyria. And the reason I think he does that is because we know that that's where they started. And so he's saying, look, you're going to lose everything. You're going to go back to day zero, where you started. The Tennessee is over. But interestingly, the way Hosea describes this exile here is quite different. See, I don't know about you, but if I was going to describe the exile, I would say it's going to be pretty bad. Uh, You should be very scared. You're going to lose your houses. You're going to lose your your, your temple. uh, And you should be pretty terrified. But actually, Hosea doesn't put it like that. Look at what he says in verse 4. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be, like, uh, be, be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. Now notice what he's talking about there. He's talking about worship. See, he's saying you won't be able to give your offerings, you won't be able to give your sacrifices, you won't be able to come into the temple because you're going to go into exile. See, notice he's not saying, look, you're going to go into exile, your house is going to be burned to a crisp. He's saying you won't be able to worship. Now, maybe you think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound that bad, especially to these people. They've been worshipping lots of different gods. What does it matter that they lose the Lord? It's like going out onto the street and meeting an atheist and saying, look, if you're an atheist, you're not going to worship God in eternity. And they say, well, okay, big deal. What's the problem? But actually, to not worship God really is the worst punishment of all. Why is that? Well, you and me are made for worship. See, worship completes us. It's what we're made to do. And it's not something we see through us here that we can ever avoid. Everyone worships. Everyone lives for something greater than themselves. As Bob Dylan says, you've got to have someone, you've got to have some, to have to serve someone, yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And see, in the exile, God is, in a way, giving the people what they want. It's not that his judgment's unfair. He's not flying off the handle. He's saying, look, if you want these other gods, well, you can have them. You see, of course, something similar in Romans 1, where Paul says, 
they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, he's speaking about humanity here, for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. See, God's judgment is not to kind of pour out wrath on a people desperate to seek him. See, God's biggest judgment is to say yes to our desire for idols. See, God's judgment really isn't harsh. It's given us what we want. And that does really just sound like uh, the end of things. Look at verse 7 of chapter 9. He says, The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this, because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man, a maniac. It seems we leave this really with no hope. God's going to give them what they want and going to end the covenant. But let's remember where we started in the book of Isaiah. Just turn back with me to chapter 3, verse 4. See, in chapter 3, remember, uh, Gomer uh, was a picture of Israel in the fact that she was a prostitute, uh, but Hosea going and winning her back was a picture of what God is going to do with his people. Uh, And these are the couple of verses I left out uh, for this talk. Because we read this, uh, for the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you are going to go into exile. You are going to lose all your worship, the sacred stones, the ephods, the idols. But one day you will return and you will seek me. But notice here, there's a difference. It's not just that people suddenly come to their senses and turn round. He says they seek David their king. That's a bit strange for Hosea to say that because David's been dead a long time. Uh, but of course, he's speaking about David's descendant, the son of David. See, centuries later, the people did go into exile. But years after that, another Israelite appeared, the true Israelite. And he was called the son of David. And he came and showed the devotion that Israel couldn't. In fact, as he went out into the desert, so his stomach was feeling hunger pains, Satan tempted him. He tempted him to hedge his bets. He said, use your strength to turn this rock into bread. But Jesus replied, man does not live by bread alone. And remember, Satan tempted him to idolatry. He said, worship me and all this will be yours. But Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. See, every step of Jesus' life, he showed full devotion to his father, even to the point of his death. And Jesus showed that type of devotion that you and me just can't do. He showed faithfulness where we showed fickleness. He showed devotion where we showed disloyalty. He showed love where we show lack. And because of his work, and because of his righteousness, we are counted as those who show the devotion he showed. And so we need not face the consequences of our idolatry because we know 
that we have his righteousness and we are counted as right in him. See, of course, it's, it's not harsh that God wants our devotion because he's the only origin of good and because to be devoted to idols is to move away from him. But actually, God's uh, devotion is shown in the Lord Jesus. And so he, through him, we're called uh, to devote ourselves to him. Where does this leave us as we finish? Well, don't believe the lie that adultery, uh, sorry, idolatry doesn't matter. We cannot serve two masters. And maybe here this evening, there are just some of us who need to hear that again. I know I do from time to time. Perhaps we're aware that we're hedging our bets, or we live in two worlds, we're putting a foot in each camp. Well, Hosea shows us the real danger of thinking we can mix the Lord with idols. There is only one Lord, and to come to him is to devote ourselves to what is good. And maybe some of us need to hear that again this evening. And for those of us who are devoted to him, remember it is only through the Lord Jesus and his devotion that we are counted as those who devoted devoted to the Lord. Let's pray. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Our Father, we ask for your forgiveness uh, when our hearts stray to other gods. Father, we know your will tells us that they are not anything, uh, they do not deliver what they promise, and they do not work. And Father, we pray that you help us to believe that and to believe that you are the only source of good. And so, Father, please give us the strength to flee from those idols and to flee and cling to the Lord Jesus. And we praise you for his work and his devotion. And thank you, Father, that by your grace you count what he did as ours. In Jesus' name, amen.